How many of you in this room came from a super godly home where both were, were saved and you were raised under a, in the sense of a biblical marriage? Now, if your parents are here right now, you have to raise your hand. But everyone else, uh, how many were raised in that kind of environment? Can I see your hands? Put them up. Put them way up there. Okay. So that's quite a bit. That's about oh, I, maybe 40% of the room, typically it's around 20%, sometimes 15% that you see. And therefore, it really behooves us to say, well, how do we have a biblical marriage? How do we have a a godly home? Uh, It wasn't modeled for me, or even if it was modeled for me, it wasn't perfect, obviously. So where do we look? You know, when you're building a building, you've got a blueprint. Uh, When you have jobs, you have, in a sense, a job description And a lot of times at a job site, you know, there's even plans that are laid out. Well, when it comes to marriage, you have a blueprint, and it's found in the Scripture, and it's found in Genesis chapter 2. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to look at the original blueprint for marriage, the original blueprint. And it's going to be basic but pointed this morning as we open up God's design for marriage from the very beginning. Now tonight we'll be looking at Ephesians 5 and seeing some incredible truth come out of that, especially towards men. But understand, when you see the Bible and you look at Genesis chapter 1, obviously the book of beginnings, giving the Hebrew nation their roots and where they came from and their orientation that way, Genesis 1 is the creation account where it describes the creation of the world in six literal 24-hour days. When you get to Genesis chapter 2, it's an expansion or description of the sixth day. It's telling you what happened on that sixth day in Genesis chapter 2 when our God created man and woman. And by doing so, he gives the original blueprint. This was God's original design. No one else made marriage. No one else designed marriage. No one else designed men or women, but God did. And God is the one who's put this plan together And you must follow God's original blueprint or you're going to mess up your marriage. Therefore, these principles that come out of here are absolutely foundational towards every marriage. And by the way, if you're not married, towards, in a sense, having healthy relationships and understanding marriage and understanding God himself. So if your marriage is not built correctly on this foundation, you will not resist the storms that come against you and particularly in our society. So I'm going to jump right in. If you have an outline, I hope you do. If you don't, you need one. And track with me. I think the PowerPoint will follow along. Number one in your outline, marriage is a commitment designed by God for God. It's designed by God and for God. Marriage ceremonies are different in every single culture. But don't be fooled by that. Marriage is God's design in any culture. And God saw the need And he organized the very first wedding, and he was present to witness that ceremony, almost like a father giving away the bride, as he's described here in verse 22, Moses tells us, and the Lord God, verse 22, Genesis 2, fashioned into a woman uh, the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. This is God's idea. And Moses comments in verse 24, For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And Jesus Christ himself quotes verse 24 in 
Matthew chapter 19 as the very words of God himself. So let me quote that from your outline. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. God ordained marriage. Can I hear an amen to that? God did. Okay, that was not very uh, responsive. So in Southern California, they respond when a preacher says, say, respond. So I would ask you again, would you say amen that God created marriage? Thank you very much. Okay, we're back now into Southern California responsiveness. So understand marriage is more than just legalizing sexual relationships uh, or recognizing mating instincts. Marriage is far deeper than that. Marriage is a commitment. It is a vow that is consummated. It's a vow that is consummated. A vow before God and people. That's why we have a wedding ceremony. And it is the consummation of that vow in sexual intimacy, period. It is an unbreakable agreement, an unshakable promise, and the most serious union sealed by sexual intimacy. Now, what does the Bible say can break a marriage? Well, the Bible teaches that adultery in Matthew 5 and 19 violates the consummation and that desertion over one's testimony in 1 Corinthians 7 violates the vow. Because it's those two things ordained by God, adultery and desertion are serious and they can break a marriage. But thank God, because of God's grace and because of the grace found in Christ Jesus, he can and does often even repair those kind of breakage, right? And so God is able to do that, but marriage is God's design from start to finish. And your marriage and if you're single, your marriage to be, most likely, is to be for God, not for you. This is really important. Colossians 1.16 says, all things are for him, and that includes marriage. In fact, it says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, do all to the glory of God, and that includes marriage. Brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, your marriage is not for you. It is for God. It is designed by God, and it is for God. And you're here to hopefully grow and to be encouraged in the concept and the understanding and the principles of marriage that are found in God's Word and God's design. But your marriage is first not for your wife. It is not for your husband. It is for God. This is what marriage is based upon. It is not about you. It's not about what you want. It's not about what your spouse wants. It is what God wants. It is God's design. And that's only going to happen if you're rightly related to God, correct? That's the only way. You cannot please God unless you know God and you are redeemed by God. You can't please Him. And therefore, you must know Him. You must love Him first. The great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Ephesian church was solid in their doctrine, solid in their behavior, but they had lost their first love. It is that we love him first that makes marriage work. It is that he is the core and value. Now, I love my wife desperately. I really do. But I have to be careful. You know why I have to be careful? Because Abraham, he loved his son Isaac so much that God took him to the mountain to test it. He did. Did he love the Lord, trust the Lord, more than his son? 
And in marriage, it's the same. Do I love the Lord more than I love my spouse? Do I love the Lord more than I love my children or other relationships? The Gospels warn us, do they not, that nothing must come in conflict with our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that correct? It is. In fact, our love for Him is to be so great, when you compare your love for Christ to any other love, it's almost to look like it is love-hate. The contrast is supposed to be so great. Your love for Him is supposed to be so much greater. That's why Luke 14 says, if you don't hate your father and hate your mother and hate your own life and hate all other relationships, you cannot be my disciple. What he's saying there is that your love for Christ has got to be so much greater than your other loves that it looks like when you're comparing that love to your love for Christ, it looks like love-hate. Does that make sense? That's where we're at with marriage. If your marriage is supremely about your spouse, that's a bad thing. If your life is centered about your family over Christ, that's a bad thing. It really goads me when I hear people say, especially Christian people, family first. That's heresy. It's not family first. It's Christ first. Christ above all. Can I hear an amen to that? If we're going to really understand marriage, you've got to understand that it's for him. We're doing this for him. This marriage relationship is for him. And if we don't have that perspective, we will not have a healthy marriage. This is how you experience a great marriage. It is a marriage that loves the Lord first, above all, seeking to please him, so dependent upon him that you're empowered by the Spirit of God, and then you have the resources to actually give yourself away in marriage. But if, unless you're rightly related vertically, you'll not have the resources to give yourself away horizontally. So the question you have to ask yourself, even as we're beginning in this understanding of marriage, is this. Do you love the Lord? Do you truly know Christ? Has he transformed you? Listen, you understand the gospel, that your sin falls on Christ, that his righteousness covers you, which makes you right for heaven. Correct? Please nod your head. All right? It is an expression of faith. Uh, that God gives you, and repentance, where you turn from your sin. God arranged all that, but God does something else in salvation. He regenerates you. He causes you to be born again. He gives you a new heart, and in giving you a new heart, he gives you new desires, a desire and an empowerment to obey him. You want to please him. So here's the question. Are you here this morning wanting to please Jesus Christ? Are you here this morning wanting to obey Jesus Christ? Romans 6, 17 says he gives you a heart that wants to obey. If you're not there, you will not be able to have a biblical marriage because you're not a Christian. And Christ is not first in your life. It must be first established that you have a relationship with him. So are you willing to do anything that Christ wants you to do? Are you wanting to do whatever Christ wants you to do? Because the core issue with many, many marriages... And a lot of the counseling that takes place is the discovery that one or both do not know Christ. And they're trying to live the Christian life in their own strength, and they are miserable people. If you do not know Christ, you cannot have a marriage that is for him. Are you truly God's child? Christ is not one of your priorities. He's first in all your priorities, including your marriage. If Christ isn't first... It's like one man who wrote, it's like two ticks and no dog, right? 
Uh, there's no resources. There's no blood source. It's, I'm trying to get from you. You're trying to get from me. But there's no dog. There's no resource. Are you with me? It's like two vacuum cleaners trying to get something from each other. It doesn't work. We cannot be like those in Ephesus who were great with their doctrine, who worked really hard, who refuted error. They knew the word, but they did not love Christ first. So do you know Christ? Because marriage is for God. Number two, number two, what makes an original blueprint is marriage is designed for a male and a female. How radical is that today? It says back, if you jump back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 27, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, then God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, by saying, let us make man, Moses is telling us the entire Godhead is involved in the creation of male and female. And our image here makes people unique in that we give the world a picture of who God is. Do you understand that marriage is actually to point to the triune God? That there's a oneness in marriage like there's a oneness in the Trinity, and yet there's a distinct roles of Father, Son, and Spirit, right? Unique persons within the context of the Trinity, yet one God, right? Okay, we're all here. This is, this is a Christian church. We're not talking, okay, other doctrines here. This is the Trinity, and yet there's distinctiveness. So there's a oneness, and yet there's a uniqueness in the roles. And that's what we're supposed to be honoring and glorifying in our marriages. We also, also, he says here, rule creation. People, in a sense, stand between God uh, with, above and animals below as God's ruling representative to the planet. We're to demonstrate our relationship and who God is by the way that we maintain our marriages. Uh, we take care of the place. Uh, we're the stewards of this place. And interesting enough, your dog is not your child, right? Are you with me? Some of you parents waiting for your kids to have kids, it's, and they have a dog, it's a sad day because it's not their child. Uh, you know, and if you have a dog, you understand what I'm saying. I'm a dog man, and I love dogs. I, if you have a cat, I'll pray for you. Um, no, I, I really don't not like cats. They're really good with sweet and sour sauce. I love them. Uh, but uh, people, <laughs> I, heard, I, I heard that amen. Um, people were made both male or female to display God's character with equal brilliance and therefore to let them rule with equal in value. Both male and female are humans. Both are unique. And in their uniqueness, both are designed to bear God's image. We're to be one like God is one and yet distinct with our various roles. And yet there's male and female. It's no unisex here. There's no room for lesbianism. There's no room for homosexuality. Men and women are made different in every way. God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And therefore, it is only the fall into sin which has given us manly, um, you know, in a sense, women and effeminate men. But from the beginning, that was not the design. Genesis 3 is where this is introduced in the fall of mankind and our fall into sin. But the original blueprint was they were different, and those differences are designed to complement. Complement. 
So affirm the differences between male and female. Uh, Our world wants to make both sexes one and the same. They are not. They are different. And it's more than just physical. You're to be like a team that works together. Uh, You're to be like a doubles team on a tennis court, each taking your side of the court. Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Healthy marriages complement each other like a pilot and a co-pilot. Uh, landing the plane. Uh, you play different instruments in God's orchestra. It's uniquely different, but they're uniquely different. She's not one of the boys. Uh, he's not your girlfriend. Uh, you don't, don't give your wife a chest pump you know, when she does a good meal, and, or you don't grab her head and give her a noogie. She's not one of the boys. There's a difference. Are you with me on this? And you need to recognize that. And you recognize that you're built differently, not just as male and female. Throw out those, in a sense, main differences a little bit. Men are to lead by the Word of God. Uh, They're in headship. If you want to know what headship is, it means you're responsible. It means that you're engaged in what's going on. It means that you initiate spiritual direction. That's headship. The wives are called to submit in this relationship and yet there's still a complementariness to this relationship. Men are responsible. If there's a problem, it's your responsibility to fix it. If it's your finances are out of whack, it's men who need to take the right steps. Uh, if there's a fault in the relationship, you are to initiate your obedience to the Word of God. If there's an argument, I believe men are to be the first to make things right. Wives are to support this relationship and to be the biggest cheerleader of their husbands. And husbands are to provide for their families. And they're to, wives are to organize and stabilize and run the home. It calls them home despots. There's, there's differences. And you need to, in every relationship, there's unique differences. Not just male and female, but there's one who's long-term and one who's short-term. Uh, there's one who, you know, enjoys soup that has no vegetables in it. There's another one that has like soup with vegetables in it. Uh, There's differences, and you figure out how to work in harmony and complement those differences. Healthy marriages talk about differences and how each spouse fulfills his or her role, strengths, and become weaknesses. I was born with a backpack. Every vacation I ever took was in the high Sierras. Uh, I was accustomed to dirt. I love dirt. I married a woman who hates dirt. I've never been backpacking since then. You say, Chris, you gave up so much. I didn't give up anything. It it was fine. We (laughs) motorhomed. It worked out. It was fine. I'm not totally warped. It was okay. We just decided to do those things that we both love doing together. And we've been doing that now for 36 years. And we still haven't run out of our list of our favorite things to do together. We're still working on it. Understand that differences are good. Fulfilling our roles is good. It's unique. And working together to honor Christ and having him be central is everything. Number three in your outline, marriage was planned to bring happiness, not misery. Happiness, not misery. Take a look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. Verse 23, it says this. And the man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is the world's first love song. Did you know that? 
The very first world's love song, it's poetry, it's Hebrew poetry at the highest language possible to describe the amazing creature that woman is. And that's why I think that this is a personal view, I can't base this textually, but I think that that's why women are always suckers when it comes to musicians. I just, I do. The guy could be a total loser, he can be as ugly as Mick Jagger, uh, but if he's a musician, some gal's going to be attracted to him. I don't know why. There's a, it's it's kind of part in here, I think, somehow. This phrase, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, comes this favorite Old Testament way of saying to describe an intimate personal relationship. To have this God-pleasing reaction. Adam's reaction must have been something that God delighted in because marriage in part was designed by God for his joy, right? It was not good that man should be alone. Now that doesn't mean that marriage is easy. There is a big difference between a day spa and a gym. You know the difference, right? At a day spa, they pamper you. At a gym, you what? You work. Marriage is a gym. You work at it. Uh, you, You need more than a half day seminar in order to really cultivate some good habits to make a strong relationship. But one of the best advices I ever got as a brand new married man was my mentor told me, never stop working on your marriage. Never. Work at it all the time, like you're going to the gym. There's always something to work on, always something to improve. Never stop. You never get to a level where you arrive. You need to talk to your 80-year-old couples in the congregation, and they'll tell you, we have not arrived. It's constant work. But the great thing is that marriage is also called in Peter the grace of life. It's the best that there is. It's uh, salvation, making marriage rich. Number four, this gets better now, marriage must begin with leaving other relationships. Leaving other relationships in order to establish a permanent new relationship between one man and one woman. Look what Moses says in Genesis 2.24. Look at it, basic stuff here, but for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother. Marriage begins with leaving, leaving all other relationships, the diminishing of all other relationships. Marriage requires you to leave your mom and dad. It requires you to release all other relationships. Uh, They must be broken or changed or left behind. Practically speaking, leaving has this idea of all other activities are secondary to cultivating a true love relationship. In other words, men, marriage must be a priority over work. Marriage must be a priority over children, the husband-wife relationship. And the first principle of a healthy marriage is leaving our first family. The word leave here means to abandon, to forsake. It means to sever one relationship before starting another one. In other words, marriage is to be a one-family relationship. As a single, you're a part of your parents' family. When you marry, you start a new and distinct family. When you're single, you obey and you honor your parents. When you're married, you honor your parents. You no longer obey them. It's big difference. This is why a wedding is a good thing. This is why a wedding is a good idea. It not only represents the beginning of a new relationship, it also represents the termination of the old relationship. Before marriage, you honor and obey your parents. After marriage, you honor your parents, but you obey God by making your husband your wife your primary relationship. You're not to 
look to your parents anymore? Do you look only to your wife? Do you look only to your husband? God does not want women hanging on to daddy or mommy and in marriage, and God does not want men clinging to their mommy or their daddy. God wants you to cut off the umbilical cord. We're not to be plugged into our parents anymore in that same manner. Some of you need to cut the cord to your parents. Even if there are strengths that are lacking in your spouse, you must give up the former family bond. If you're not ready to leave, then don't get married. If you're not ready to leave, then don't get married. If you're not ready to have her leave, then don't give her away. If you're unwilling to leave in your heart, then the framework of your marriage will be weak and your house will crumble. This is so important, it may mean that you have to move in order to establish a solo relationship. Unfortunately, many marriages are destroyed by parents or by couples, individual spouses who will not separate themselves from their parents. Some parents are actually ruining their children. This is really rough in other cultures. In the Hispanic culture, in the Asian culture, this is, this is so traumatic, but it's biblical. It's transcultural. Are you with me on this? This is God's design for every culture. Leave and cleave. God designed it that way. Husbands, you may have to at some point, as I had to graciously, tell my parents to back off. To back off. I actually told my mother-in-law that she would never speak to my wife a certain way ever again. You have to establish boundaries. There were times that I told my adolescent sons, you will never disrespect my wife again. And my, 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 my son Matthew said, but she's my mother. But I said, she's my wife. You don't do that. You need to establish boundaries. You don't be pursuing, you know, niceties to your parents and not leaving because of the will or because of the inheritance. Talk about living for the world. Establish the biblical mandate. The picture in Genesis 2.24 is so strong, the verb to leave can even mean amputate. And that's the way I picture it. At wedding ceremonies, I do a lot of them, and I always ask that same question, who giveth this woman to be married to this man? And he answers, her mother and I. And at that point, I picture a chop. <laughs> it's done. You gave her away at that moment. Her mother and I have given her to you. They're no longer mine anymore. Yeah, there's a daughter relationship there. There's a father. Yeah, it's there. It's to be honored, but no longer. You gave them away. Stop messing with the marriage. Get the parents out of the way. Now, parents, and even those of you who are dealing with this, you honor your parents, and you honor your step-parents, your adopted parents, your husband's parents, or your wife's parents. You honor them, but you don't obey them. I love the father who got the phone call from his newly married daughter after their first fight with her husband, in tears. She always, Daddy, was awful. We yelled at each other. It was terrible. And she said, Daddy, I want to come home. And her daddy said, Honey, you are home, as he gently hung up the phone. 
That's right. That's right. Leave and cleave. Number five. Marriage requires an inseparable joining of a husband and a wife throughout their lifetime. Finish verse 24. It says, not only leave, but they shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Cleave is an unswerving loyalty, a gluing, a continual love that will, <clears throat> will, will not go no matter what. Practically speaking, it's a wife and a husband commit to never say or never do anything that would drive a wedge between them. To cleave is to weld. It means to grip or to adhere, to glue that holds you together. It, it literally means I'm stuck on you. I'm stuck on you. I, I'm cleaved to you. You have my heart. I'd rather be with you than anyone else in the entire world. Now, the number one goal of a husband is to convince his wife that he would rather be with her than anyone. And the number one goal of a woman, a wife, is to convince her husband that she would rather be with him than anybody and anything on this planet. Is that true? Because that's the gluing we're talking about. That's what you've got to cultivate. You say, that doesn't just happen. You're right. You work at that. It ought to be that when you're in a crowd of people like this, if, if my wife were here, I'd be looking at her right now. I, I would know. In any crowd of people, I know where she is. You say, you're weird. That's, that's where we're at. That's where we're at. I, I, because we're one. We're one. We belong to each other. It's that kind of relationship. You can show it with the 10 most important words in marriage. You know what they are. You probably ought to write these down. 10 words. Are you ready? Here they are. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. I love you. Those are the 10 most important words in marriage. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. I love you. That's 10 words you should say often. One more time. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. And I love you. Say those often. Share everything. Marriage is never your space and her space. It's never his money and my money. It's never my things and your things, your dreams and my dreams. It's the gluing of all that you are for all that they are. We're not to be like the couple who was asked the secret of their great marriage relationship, and they said this, oh, it's a, it's a quiet dinner, candlelight, and a slow walk home afterwards. I go on Tuesday, she goes on Thursday. Uh, that's not it. Don't think about separate anything. It's no longer to be I and me, it's us and we. It's not merely what you like and what I like, it's what we like, what we learn to do together. Early on, my bride and I had a, a giant sheet. I, I've lost it since then of all the things that you can do together, everything, sports and activities and arts and just everything, you know, talking, everything. Just It was a massive list, and you had to rate them, one, two, three, four. And so we rated them, one, two, three, four, and then we compared the lists, and all the fours were the things that we loved the most, and so I took all my fours and all, for, all her fours, compared those, took the ones that actually were her fours and my fours, of the best things that we love together, and we've been working on that, like I said, for 36 years. We just decided we would do those things that we could do together. It's not my needs and your needs, it's our needs. It's not my time and your time, it's our time. And that doesn't mean that couples can't have space from one another and 
they do need time alone with the Lord. And some couples, there's one that's very social and that's one that's very private. And we need to honor those differences, but the unique differences should never be used as an excuse or a rationale for fall, failing to pursue each other and to be one with each other, to be glued to each other. Because it's to be not only leaving, but gluing together. So number six in your outline would be then marriage means oneness in the fullest possible sense, including intimate physical union without shame. Physical intimate union without shame. Verse 24 uh, if you amputate your relationship with your parents and you glue yourself to your spouse, then you'll become one flesh. And I believe Adam and Eve probably could communicate without even talking to each other. They were perfect. But since the fall, there's been this need to communicate and to blend. And the, like the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we're to be one and yet three, and we're to be one and yet differences are there. And look at how intimate Adam and Eve were in verse 25. Look at that. It says, and the man and his wife we're both naked and we're not ashamed. Now, in the divine pattern of marriage, sexual intercourse between a husband and a wife includes both intimate physical knowledge uh, and a tender, intimate personal knowledge of each other. So leaving and then cleaving and knowing each other results in a new identity in which two individuals merge into one person, in a sense, with total completeness. Now, one flesh does involve sexual intimacy, but it's much more than that because we know that there are marriages that have Plenty of intimacy, uh, but they are really falling apart. And so one flesh does involve that. It involves the complete identification of one person to another. Uh, that sense of marriage is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. Marriage is a, a total commitment of the total person to another. And so, but let's interpret this correctly and admit that one flesh does refer to intimacy. It does. It's more than that, but it does refer to that here. And basically, if you would, turn to 1 Corinthians 7 or look at it in your outline. There are no two creatures God created were more alike than Adam and Eve, and he said that they would be one flesh, a unity. And literally here, he talks about that in 1 Corinthians 7 of being a command. He says this, But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband, and let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband, and the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement, for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, God just commanded marital couples here in these verses four times. Four times. There's four commands in this passage to take care of each other. Physically. Intimacy. That means whenever a husband wants intimacy, you're to grant it. Whenever a wife wants intimacy, you're to grant it. Four times you're commanded in this passage. If a man wants intimacy four times a week and a wife wants intimacy two times a week, you ought to be having sex six times a week unless they overlap. Some of you are chuckling. In other words, you need to be in bed more often. Take care of each other. That's what you gave each other when you got married. This is my body, it's yours, and this is your body, it's mine, and we now belong to each other. Some of you are glorifying God in this area. Some of you are disappointing God in this area. But God expects you to take care of each other. Now, there's a reason why, if you understand your New Testament, Titus 2 has some very directive things of the older woman to train the younger woman. Have you ever read that passage? Titus 2 tells the older women to train the younger women, and it says in your Bibles, to love their husbands, the very first thing. That's a bad translation. The translation is not agape, it's phileo. It's to like your husband. 
Now, what is it about men that it requires an older godly woman to train a younger woman to like her husband? That tells you a little bit about what we're like men, okay? And it requires some extra effort. And by the way, if you're struggling in this area of physical intimacy and you're battling here, ladies, it's time for you to talk to an older godly woman because if she is godly and she's older, she's figured this out, how to take care of her husband. We need to be one flesh in marriage. It's God's plan. It's his design. Now, let me be practical and use some common sense. This is okay for youth to hear. Wives, if after taking care of your four kids or six kids, or in one case in our church, 13 kids, and the house, and a ton of chores, and then making a fantastic dinner for your husband, and you're so worn out that you've got nothing left for him, let me make this simple. Let the house be dirtier. Do a few less chores. Make peanut butter sandwiches for dinner and be intimate with him and you'll have a better marriage and a better home. Say, Chris, you're being ridiculous. No, I'm not. There is no command for a clean house. There's no command for fancy dinners. You're commanded four times to take care of each other. Are you getting this? That's the priority of it. Most of the men that I disciple, they feel, not always accurate, but they feel that once the kids come, they're put on an intimacy starvation diet. They don't want to complain because they want to keep the peace, but they're experiencing a massive struggle that only their mate can take care of. Take care of each other. Some couples actually plan to be intimate certain days and times. I, I know of a missionary couple they're an incredible couple uh, ministering in Uganda. And every Sunday, the kids know the door is shut and mom and dad are left alone all afternoon. That's, and, and it's been that way since day one. Uh, maybe that doesn't work for you. It takes the romance out of it. So there are other couples that say, well, we're going to be intimate in every day that has a T in its name. Right? And the husband said, yeah, Tuesday, Thursday, Tatterday and Tunday, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but beyond physical oneness, God's blueprint, again, doesn't happen and the grace of life doesn't blossom unless Christ is at the center. Genesis teaches you to look to God for your solutions. Why does God give us trials in marriage? To make us draw closer to him and then closer to each other. And you cannot be right with your mate unless you're right with God. And that only happens as you're dependent, you've come to Christ, and then you're dependent moment by moment upon the Spirit of God according to the Word of God to walk, and by an act of your will according to the Word of God, relying on the Spirit of God to be what Christ wants you to be. One flesh in marriage means a commitment to God for only He can give you the power to attain that oneness. Only God can bring this about. But there is no greater way in which to be a witness to this world. We'll see in Ephesians 5 that the way that the witness to the world occurs is when you get along, when you do forgive, when you have a oneness and a uniqueness. I can tell you a hundred times where Gene and I were having a date night. It was very romantic. We were at Costco. And... We have this little thing. I'm sure every couple's got their thing, right? And the thing is, is that if you 
go out of Costco without spending $100, you win, right? You, you, so you won the contest. And so we're laughing about this because we've got one little product, and it's one of those rare moments at Costco when there's no one there. And we're walking up to the cashier, we're laughing and joking, and we've got one product, just one thing, because that's what we're laughing about. Silly, I know, no big deal. The cashier is totally enamored. We didn't realize this. So we walk up, we set the product down, she goes, you guys are newlyweds. We'd been married 20 years at the time. I said, no, 20 years. And we got to talk to her about Christ who pulled this off. People don't understand when you actually enjoy each other, love each other, are one together, and you actually adore your spouse, that's something the world has no clue about. They only wish they had that. But you can have that in Christ. You can. So let's conclude with some thoughts. First of all, live by truth. Live by truth. Do what the Bible says. It's been said that animals follow their instincts, that people follow their emotions, but Christians follow truth. Do what the Bible says. Not what you want, what you prefer. Do what the Bible says. God's word's the only way it works. It's not the 10 suggestions. It's not the pirate code. This is not guidelines. This is God's absolute authoritative word. It's the only blueprint for marriage. It's the only way it will work is to do it his way. Amen to that? It's only that. So commit yourself to live by truth. Any sins that have been committed, any of the problems in our marriage are our responsibility, not God's. God's holds us responsible for our actions, and yet in his love for us, he's given us a way in our marriages that can experience his power through his spirit, through the indwelling Holy Spirit according to the word of God. And you will often say in marriage, I can't do this, but he can through you. He can through you. You can obey. You say, well, I can't obey that. No, what you're saying as a Christian is I won't obey that because you can obey as a believer. Live by truth. Number two, develop marriage commitments. Marriage commitments. I know you have marital commitments. Uh, these are not mine, but I live by these, and here they are. First, commit to stay married no matter what. Malachi chapter 2, <clears throat> the prophet's um, talking to families and marriages, and he says, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and your wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant or wife by vow. God is a witness at your wedding. He is the one that you said I will be permanent with. I agreed that I will not break this vow till death do us part, as long as we both shall live. Therefore, live that way. Just take divorce off the table. It's never a discussion. We're going to make this work. Ruth Graham was once asked if she would ever consider divorcing Billy. She said, divorce, never. Murder, yes. Divorce, never. It's never an option. Never. You made a vow. A vow is a permanent, unaltering agreement. Take all thought, all conversation, all possibility of breaking your vow away. Just take it away. Say, we will make this work. We'll get whatever help we need. We'll do whatever it takes to make this happen. Number two, commit to spiritual growth. 
Commit to spiritual growth. 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Only those who grow remain fresh. Um, have any of you mastered this book? Anybody? Mastered the book. You know what? I'm, I'm here. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. My wife is still learning, still growing. The wonderful thing about our marriage is my wife she loves teaching kindergartners. I call her Mrs. Rogers. When she starts teaching, you want to pick up a blankie, find a graham cracker, and listen. It's the most amazing. I do. I start drooling. I just listen. She's incredible. She, but the amazing thing about our church is that every six years, we go through the entire scripture with our children. Every six years. The entire Bible. And so we're talking about stuff, even though I'm preaching through Philippians in two years, you know, I'm preaching the gospel, Mark takes me four years. She's going through the whole Bible every six years. So she's going through all the minor prophets and all the major prophets and the Old and the New Testament. And we're always talking about the Bible. We never run out of things to talk about, ever. And we're talking about how it applies and how it lives and, and how it should be manifested in our home. And it's a wonderful thing. It's a, a wonderful blessing. You should never stop growing. There should always be books you're reading and talking about. Separately or together, it really doesn't matter. Take time to serve together. Read biographies together. Keep growing together. Live the truth in ministry. Stop wasting so much time watching TV or watching Netflix or binge watching. Talk about scripture together all the time. Talk over the sermons on Sunday. They're rich, they're full. Talk about them. Discuss them. Take steps to apply them. Teach your children's ministry. Teach your youth ministry. Invest into someone else's life as a couple. But keep growing. Number three, commit to preferring the other. Marriage is not 50-50. It's all of you for all of them. You're 100% in. Stop wimping out and set direction, biblical direction. Embrace the fact, men, that you're responsible. If finances are out of order, then start paying the bills. Set the direction. Don't be passive. Let lead your home biblically. What is leadership? Spiritual leadership is basically this is what the Bible says. We're going to do what the Bible says. That's it. If communication is wacky, then work out ways to talk together. But keep preferring each other. Fourthly, commit to the kids second. Commit to the kids second. You will not like what I'm about to say. Genesis 2 teaches us that marriage comes before children. Right? Let me make this pointed. You're headed for a divorce with your children. You are. You will leave them. They will leave you, but you'll never leave your spouse. Your family is not a permanent union. Your marriage is. Children are temporary. Marriage is lifelong. It is. When you find yourself an empty nester like myself, if you've worked on your marriage and established your marriage, you can't wait for the kids to leave the home. Now, we love being with our kids. We have a great relationship with the kids. Incredible relationship. My grandkids are fun. I am grandpa fun. You know what Hawaiian is? For the, the word grandpa in Hawaiian, do you know what that is? Cuckoo. <laughs> it fits. I, I, my kids, my grandkids love me. My kids love it when we come and we take over and, and do what we do as grandparents. Understand, 
We have a wonderful relationship, but we're so glad they're gone. I, 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 I mean, Gene and I get to be together all the time now. Some of you, that's a horrific thought. For us, we couldn't wait. You know, it was interesting. Uh, we went through a, a, a very difficult time uh, in pastoring a long time ago. There was a woman in our church who was, had four young children, and she was divorcing, leaving her husband. And it was one of those divorces that everybody knew about. It wasn't a secret. So my children knew about it. And my wife and I were concerned that it would affect them. So we asked them, are you concerned about this? Do you think that mommy and daddy would ever divorce? And Matthew goes, no! And we're like, and he's like six years old, you know? And I'm like, what's that all about? You know, rapid no. And I said, well, why, why do you think that? He said, because your marriage, your marriage is, is just too powerful. And Gene and I, you know, having been aware of the Power Rangers, kind of put our rings together and went, da 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 like that. And he goes, no, 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 that's not what I meant. And we understood what he meant, that he was stable in that relationship, that he trusted that relationship. And he should have been trusting that relationship. We need to offer that to our children, that stability. But because of fear and because of this culture, many women are cleaved to their children and not to their spouse. And if there's a conflict with the kids and the spouse, the spouse must win. Don't ever say, I'll always be there for your kids, because you won't be. Make sure mom and dad are respected always and honored always. But there's a sense of committing to the kids second. Fifthly, commit to the bride of Christ. Sports are out of control. Entertainment's out of control. Christians are violating the commands to serve, to give, to sacrifice. They're worshiping their homes over God. Home is an idol, sports are an idol, entertainment's an idol, clubs are an idol. And we, we ought to be about the process of serving Christ. Your children need to see you as a couple serve something greater than them. If all your life is about them, then you're creating monsters. You're creating children whose whole worldview is about themselves. They need to see you serve Christ. They need to see that. You say, well, I can't be out one more evening. I go, why not? You're serving Christ. Sixthly, commit to time together. Schedule intimacy if you need to, but most of all, schedule a date night. We found another couple with similar age children. We dropped our boys off there. We spent the night, and then two nights later, they dropped their kids off, and they would become best friends for life, these children. But we had time as a couple, they had time as a couple. And we talked about the kids, we talked about life, but we spent time together cultivating our relationship. You need to do that. Commit to the things and talk about the Lord and talk about your children, how you're going to shepherd them and how you're going to care for one another and cultivate that relationship. Remember, it's a gym, not a spa. Marriage does not have to be a three-ring circus, starting with the engagement ring, and then it goes to the wedding ring, and then it leads to the suffering. It doesn't have to do that. Turn to Christ. Depend on his word. Do things according to his blueprint. And you will be blessed. Let's pray together.